What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. In 2015, music journalist Kenneth Partridge did the impossible. He published a long-form think piece about ska on Pitchfork. This article called Remembering the Real Lessons of Two-Tone Ska came after Kenneth, a lifelong ska fan, noticed that several two-tone bands were suddenly releasing new albums. He thought this was a great opportunity to analyze Two-Tone's legacy and discuss how it was very different from the 90s U.S. ska scene he was a part of as a teenager. After the article published, Kenneth, our guest today, continued to think about these differences, specifically what the legacy of 90s American ska was, why it was so different than Two-Tone, and if it deserved respect on its own terms. His new book, Hell of a Hat, The Rise of 90s Ska and Swing, is the result of this journey. Today we discuss Kenneth's book and ask the big question, why did he also include swing? So when you wrote your ska book, turns out there are other people in other places in the world having the same idea to write a book about ska, and Kenneth is one of them. Yep, yep. There was uh, me, Mark Wasserman, and Kenneth Partridge. So this is going to cause a little bit of like uh, East Coast, West Coast rivalry, right? No, no, no. We're all friends. We're all on the same page of pushing, you know, ska into culture and and defending ska in our own ways. So, you know, hey, everyone else out there, if you want to write a ska book, come join. When you told me about Ken's book, Hell of a Hat, that it dealt with ska and swing, I was like, wait, 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 wait. We're going to lump in the like three month period that swing had a moment with, (laughs) with the ska scene. So that was, that was the first thing I felt like we needed to talk about when we talked to Ken. Yeah. And it turns out we're kind of like the ignorant 
ska people that we are always talking about when it comes to swing, because swing's history is actually a little different than we assumed it was. Right. Our perception of it is very similar to how the rest of the world perceives the 90s ska boom. Yes. Which I guess is why he lumped them together. He was on to something after all. You got five minutes. I want you to defend swing right now. <laughs> I'm going to need at least at least nine minutes to defend swing. <laughs> Take all the time you need, but defend swing for me. I was like, wait, there was actually a swing scene? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... I see what you're saying. It's it's a it's a hard thing to to uh, defend as far as as far as some people are concerned. Um, I think that it got actually like a worse name uh, than ska. I'd be sort of curious to hear what what you guys think about that. But one thousand percent, yeah. <laughs> Your book definitely um, softened some of my views on swing. Although I have like typically liked to use swing as an example to show what ska isn't. Because in my mind, like Scott Austin gets framed as a trend that sort of came and went to mainstream eyes. That's what Scott was in the 90s. And it's like you go, no, 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 that's not at all what Scott was. Scott had been not only did Scott have this long history starting from Jamaica, but even in the U.S., it had had a pretty prominent place since the early 80s. And it was a fraction of the bands that existed were the ones that were in the spotlight, whereas swing was more like what people think ska was or that's kind of been my view and that's been my argument that i've made with people as i've defended ska yeah so it's your turn to defend swing yeah well the thing that i would say is that i think all of the bands that got sort of popular um in the in the, like a swing moment of of uh, 98 like had actually been around for a long time it wasn't like they were a bunch of like bandwagon jumpers you know it was like royal crown review had been around since you know, like 89, um, you had, you know, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy was since like, you know, 92, 93, um, you know, Cherry Pop and Daddies had been, you know, you know, since like the 80s also, you know, playing all, all different styles, obviously, not, not just, not just, you know, swing, they were, they played ska, they played, you know, funk rock, they played like, you know, pretty much everything that you could imagine, um, uh, you know, Brian Setzer too, since like, you know, the early 90s. So, yeah, I think because of like, you know, the Gap commercial and a couple of like the movies that came out, it was more of like a like a flash in the pan kind of thing. And I think that's what kind of turned people off to it. But I think it had a lot of the same characteristics as, as Ska in that it was this pretty like organic, like underground, you know, movement that had a lot of ex-punk rockers that were part of it. And it wasn't, you know, I can definitely see how it like ended up looking, you know, very corny to like you know, people afterwards, uh, certainly. Um, but I think it didn't like necessarily start out that way. And, you know, well, I should say from the, you know, just, just kind of like off the bat too, that I was, I was much more of a uh, ska kid, like when I was growing up in the nineties, uh, like I, I liked some of the swing bands, but I wasn't like, I didn't know how to dance or anything. I didn't really go to any swing shows because there weren't really like any local, you know, swing bands where I'm from in uh, kind of like outside of um, Hartford, uh, Connecticut, but there was like a million ska bands. So I was, I was, I was definitely like a hardcore ska kid. My impression because I wasn't really paying attention to swing, but I knew Cherry Pomp and Daddies because they were um, they were a little bit more closer into the ska scene because they played ska, funk, and like, like you said, they sort of played everything. And I saw them play in 92 as an opening band for Skank and Pickle. And they wore t-shirts. They just looked like dudes, just regular dudes, just kind of shoved on the stage with barely enough room for them. And I liked it. I bought their tape and I was like, this is pretty cool. Then it's just like, I saw them on MTV, all suited up with Zoot Suit Riot. And so, so to me, that was like, oh, my God, here you have this band that's like just like punk rock 
dudes and shirts kind of playing all this stuff. And all of a sudden they're a quote unquote swing band. That's, that was sort of how it looked to me, but I know that's not really the story. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, um, as far back as their first album, they had, they had like swing songs that kind of sounded, you know, quite a bit like the ones that they would, you know, then make them popular about a decade later. But uh, yeah, there's a funny story about, cause yeah, like they all used to just wear like whatever they wanted to on stage. And they played with the Boston's one time. I mean, I think this is in, I'm in the book. I mean, uh, Dickie Barrett like saw them and he's like, He's like, you know, like you guys look like you're a bunch of uh, shipwreck victims. Like you need to pull it together and, <laughs> you know, wear like, like some nicer clothes. And, you know, I think they kind of took that to heart. But uh, yeah, the story of kind of how they like went from playing all different styles to being a swing band in the uh, late 90s is it was just kind of a weird thing where they were on tour and like people would always come up to the merch booth and they would want to know like which of the albums had, had, had the most uh, swing songs on them. And at some point, their manager was like, well, you know, like, why don't we just, you know, take all the swing songs from all of all of our records that have been out so far, like put a couple of new songs on it. And we would have, you know, something that people would like be really into. And, you know, they had no idea that it was going to blow up the way that it did. But uh, just I think it just came along at the right moment. I think it's interesting because there was less swing bands, you know, like as opposed to the ska scene, the ska scene was this really eclectic thing that it seemed like, you know, the major labels sort of cherry picked. Um, bands that they felt comfortable marketing with the swing bands there wasn't a lot of bands and you know like you said they all started off you know in their respective scenes but it seems like each of the big five ones had a different reference point like there's some place that they were coming from and, and what they were going for was all kind of different yeah yeah i think that's definitely true um yeah they weren't all the same certainly i mean like like a, like you know brian setzer had like the big band and you know they had like i don't know it was a, i'm like you know, they had like you know, 15 or 16 people in that group. And that like sounded totally different than, you know, Royal Crown who were like all over the place in terms of they would do like jump blues, but then they would play really weird jazz stuff. And I mean, that band was probably the most like, you know, punk rock, but also the most jazz at the same time, if that makes sense. Like they were like, you know, kind of by all accounts, like that was the band that really like ought to have gotten the most attention, but it just didn't really work out for them, you know, quite that way. Yeah. And then, and like you were, you were talking about a squirrel neck zippers basically being not so much a swing band as they were categorized, but more of a band that was just really into music that occurred pre forties. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of played like, you know, like hot jazz and, you know, yeah. I mean, kind of like everything that was like leading up to swing in a way. And then, yeah. I mean, I guess they had some songs that, you know, kind of swung in like a musical sense. So like the, you know, dancers could still go see them and, you know, the media kind of lumped them in, but yeah, I think I just put them in the book just because, you know, they were definitely categorized as as a swing band and they, you know, had some of the same characteristics, but, uh, you know, certainly they were on, on, on their own trip for sure. I remember it kind of blew my mind when I looked in the liner notes for the uh, Squirrel Nut Zippers album. You can see there's a live shot and the drummer's wearing a black flag shirt. <laughs> yeah. Like everything about that record is like so retro and so like of a certain time period. And then he's wearing a black flag shirt. It was like the weirdest thing to me. <laughs> yeah, I think it just goes to show that at some point, all these guys were like, were punks, you know, at some point, like in the 80s. I remember having been just writing about music for the last decade, realizing that uh, Jimbo, is that his name? Jimbo? Yeah. What's his last name? Jimbo Mathis. Jimbo Mathis. His music career post Squirrel Nut Zippers has kind of veered more towards Americana and Roots music in a more overt way, like a, not in a big band type way. So what I, what I was saying is as a music journalist, in the last decade, I've kind of come across that, and it's given me a little insight into what Squirrel Nut Zippers were actually about. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a good point because yeah, their stuff was kind of just like weird Americana. Like the you know, Scorlet Zipper stuff was had like a lot of blues in it and like some you know country elements and yeah, I mean you know Jimbo was this guy who was from the South and had this you know crazy rural upbringing and uh, you know like I think he, like like I think he worked on like oil barges at one point. Like he was like you know kind of this like eccentric you know Southern character and, uh, that really comes across in, in their songs for sure. In the book, you said, and I wasn't aware of this that the swing albums they sold more records it was actually kind of a bigger thing than ska was even mainstream ska yeah yeah i think so i mean if you look at uh you know a cherry pop and daddies i think went uh double platinum with uh zoot suit riot um you know squirrel nut zippers went platinum and uh, big bad voodoo daddy also went platinum whereas like on the ska side you can look at you know there's like you know tragic kingdom obviously has sold like 10 million copies or something and then you know the boss tones went uh platinum with um with with uh, without with uh, without let's face it but you know beyond that there weren't really any like you know there was i mean even like in a real big fish only sold like i think that went gold but you know i mean it wasn't like they were going platinum either some of those bands yeah you're right like real big fish their name gets thrown around a lot and everyone knows their name but they weren't quite as big as people think they were yeah i think that's right i mean like their songs are are, are like super uh memorable so you kind of you know, think of them just because, I mean, they weren't doing Boston numbers or anything like that. And and they have the longevity, but they, and they've maintained it over the years where they consistently play the same size rooms. So I think that gives the impression that they're probably a little bit bigger. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, to their credit really. I mean, definitely. I mean, during the kind of fallow years, uh, you know, like in the early aughts, they really like, they kept it going. Yeah. They were still out there. Yeah. 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 Those guys really, I mean, I, I've got, I've got uh, nothing but, you know, good things to say about, about Real Big Fish. I think they deserve all the credit in the world. The swing thing. I don't know. This is such a broad question, so I apologize. But do you know why it happened and why it got so big? Because it still kind of boggles my mind thing, a little right? bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I lived through that time and I still don't quite get it. Yeah. No, it's a, I mean, it had like been this kind of popular like underground thing in, in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles and, you know, I think as soon as anything kind of gains enough steam on the underground, the you know labels come and kind of start sniffing it out, and you know it, it like it had a look. It had a it was it was like something you could sort of package and be like, hey, this is like a new thing. And I don't know beyond that, you know, I I think it's sort of like one of the kind of like underlying theories in my book is I just think that it was sort of like the right music for the right time in the like late '90s, you know, um, you know, sort of ska in a similar way where uh just like some of the bad things that had been happening in like the earlier part of the decade had you know kind of been forgotten a little bit and like the economy was doing really well and there weren't a lot of conflicts with like other countries or anything and i I don't know i just feel like you know swing and ska were sort of i mean like in the same way that you know grunge was like the right music and 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 gangster rap was like the right music for like 90 you know two i think i think ska and swing was right for like you know for for like five or six years later Mm-hmm. lighthearted music for light times yeah yeah and i mean you know there were like obviously ska bands that were you know singing about serious things but i think i think by and large you know just you know, i mean i'm just kind of like you think back to the shows that i went to like in high school certainly you know there was a certain you know political consciousness to it but i think for a lot of people it was just about like these are like these are super fun shows you can go and you can dance and it was it was unlike anything that I had ever experienced up up to that point, you know. Tell us your personal reference point. What when when you got into this music, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I 
uh, I discovered ska music on, on my last day of middle school. Um, we were going on like a field trip or something. And like, there was like a few friends of mine were like, Hey man, like you, like you gotta hear this new thing that we, we just found out about. And they had like a stack of, of records and, or actually they would have been, and somebody's a discman probably. So it was a bunch of, uh, compact discs as it were, but yeah, I remember they, you know, somebody had, had a voodoo glow skulls, um, who is, this is, um, they had this compilation that was called uh, Skanarchy, which, which, uh, which actually came out around the uh, around the same time as uh, as uh, Misfits of Ska. It was like in in a like ninety five, I want to say, and it was you know sort of like ska punk leaning. Uh, so it was sort of it had like you know Meth Scofflees was on it. It had um, Mu three thirty um, uh, Digits was on there. That you know really weird song Digits. Um, <laughs> so. It, great song it is a great song that, that was my first exposure to that band and i was like wow they're a bunch of foot fetishes okay that's cool that's cool you know it had it had um, spring hill jack who was like the like the big local uh you know band in um, connecticut where i'm from i think somebody had like operation ivy too that day so th- i just you know got played all this stuff on on like a school bus i don't know going to the beach or something and was just like wow this is incredible and i spent the whole you know, two months kind of leading up to my freshman year of high school, just like learning as much as I could about it. And I would go to like the local, like, like, you know, Borders Books and Music. And I remember I got, um, you know, Bim Scala Bim Live at the Paradise. And I got uh, Toasters um, and then probably like Skaboom. Uh, just, you know, picked up as much stuff as I could, tried to learn as much as I could. Um, it actually turned out that a, a friend of my dad's from like back when he was a kid, uh, this guy, uh, Larry Parasino, he had been like really into uh, two tone, like 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 you know, back in the day, like at, at at the actual time it was happening. So like as soon as he heard that I was into ska, he um, he gave me uh, the specials, um, the the the, the uh, singles collection, and that hmm. just, you know blew the doors off it for me. And then from you know from there I was just like obsessed with uh, two tone pretty much going forward. And yeah, spent all of my high school years just you know seeing local bands, seeing national bands, just trying to learn about you know kind of trying to learn about as much about it as I could. So high school for you was 96, 97, 98, 99 then? Yeah, I graduated in uh, 99. So I guess we started. Wow, so you're, you're like right in it then, like all through high school. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess it was yeah, fall of 95 I started. I remember going to my first Scott show. It was just um, um, a couple days before school started that year. So this would have been like August, uh, you know, 95, I guess. And I remember uh, uh, my friend had a copy of um, of, um, um, of uh, Rancid's um, "Outcome the Wolves" that had like just come out, and it was like playing that on the, like on the way to my first Scott show, and so it was sort of I mean that was like before like you know Time Bomb even you know blew up on radio, so it was kind of I don't know it was kind of like perfect sign of the times record to be hearing on, on the way to my first Scott show. But what show was that that you were headed to? It was it was a uh, Spring Hill Jack was the headliner with with a uh, Johnny Too Bad and the Strikeouts who were this. Nice. Uh, yeah, sort of great mod ska band out of uh, Connecticut. I actually wrote about both of those bands on uh, my newsletter that I started because I wasn't able to fit them into the book, but I wanted to, you know, pay homage to both of those bands because they they were definitely they were you know formative bands for me for sure. Johnny Too Bad and the Strikeouts had Mara Breen of uh, Siren Six later. Really cool connection there. Yeah, that was her her uh, band before the Siren Six. I think she uh, joined after after uh, Johnny Too Bad sort of split up, but. Uh, yeah, they were fantastic. They had like the whole mod, you know, look down and, uh, you know, they put out a record on, on Moon um, in, I guess, like 97, I guess it was. Um, yeah, they were just a fantastic band. Your book, 
focuses not not exclusively but primarily on the bigger bands the bands that were more recognizable in the mainstream culture whereas um your newsletter focuses on lesser known bands mm-hmm. i'm curious about the decision on both of those parts yeah so you know with the book i was you know, I, I was, I was, I'm trying to look at, you know, Scott and Swing as sort of mainstream uh, phenomenons and sort of why they both got really popular when they did. This is kind of going back to my kind of underlying thesis about, you know, the late 90s and the sort of general uh, cultural mood, I guess, at the time. Um, so I guess I just wanted to kind of talk about bands that almost any kid that had gone to high school in like the late 90s, like might have heard of, you know. So I didn't want to get too, too obscure, but I also wanted to, you know, paint a pretty you know, broad picture of what like, both of the scenes were like. So, you know, I've got like Kep Cat and the Slackers and the Pie Tasters who are, you know, maybe bands that you wouldn't necessarily know about if you were just, you know, listening to alt-rock radio. Although, you know, to some extent, all those bands had some kind of MTV exposure. Um, but yeah, I, I just kind of wanted it to be like, for like, you know, people of that of that generation, they could, they could like see this like book in a store and be like, oh yeah, like I, I know all these bands and, I never thought to like associate them together, like the Boston's Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Like, you know, why would like they be the same? But you know, maybe they like have certain things in common, and maybe they, you know, it's it's not an accident. Maybe why they both got you know super big around the same time. And so you wanted to highlight the lesser known, like these sort of obscure bands for your newsletter to sort of pay pay homage to these the bands that were kind of operating underneath the mainstream level of ska. Yeah, just because I was, I was, I was, I was like a huge fan of these bands, and you know, I mean, if the book could have been longer, I would have, I would have had Thumper in there, and I would have had Spring Hill Jack, and you know, all the all the ones that I've done for my newsletter. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I was, I was kind of trying to, you know, look at it like more as like a mainstream phenomenon. But yeah, like this music was, you know, super important to me growing up, and. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want people to think that I like only knew the big mainstream bands because I had, I, mean, <laughs> I, I had like every Scott compilation that like you could ever think of, and I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I was, I was, I was fairly well versed in it. I, I like to think anyway. We've brought up Thumper several times on this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, wasn't it um, uh, Patrick Stump? Uh, right? Patrick Stump knew them, and that uh, that blew Adam's mind because uh, that's Adam's favorite track, I believe, right from Misfits of Scott Tooth. Absence was the band that I really liked that uh, Patrick brought up. Oh, okay. But but yeah, Thumper's come up a couple times on on uh, the podcast, and I got, I was lucky enough on tour to see them play a couple times. Mm-hmm. Really great. Yeah, so good. Like I I feel like your description of them in your newsletter, you I think you said you know in addition to to ska, uh, hardcore, you, you had a couple other other musical landmarks for them and i was i was like right on board with that and (laughs) then and then just i remember we had their album at least one of their albums in our van Mm -hmm. and it it was just it had like this really religious looking cover (laughs) yeah yeah that was probably their um it's probably on hellfire and uh, damnation there yeah that that album yeah that's a great album what was your introduction to thumper was it from mrs scott too or did you see them you know just as a band playing so yeah, Thumper was on that on that Skanarchy compilation that I mentioned. Oh, okay, it was one of the first things I ever heard. But also, you know, they were from outside of Boston, so they're like they were somewhat local to me. You know, I'm from uh, New England, so they would like they would come around to you know and come through Connecticut a lot. And yeah, I think a friend of mine you know, made me a tape of uh, 
of their album uh, "No One Left the 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 Disco Alive," which is has got some really great songs on it. And you know, they were like, you know, talking about like religion and you know, they were like a fairly you know political and you know topical bands, but just like always couched in and you know a, a lot of humor and just like really smart lyrics, and then also just like these you know super heavy guitars that were just insane. <laughs> they were they were just such a weird band. It was it was a real thrill to actually you know, talk to them for this, for this newsletter. What was their shows like? I never got to see that band live. I saw them only one time and it was like the weirdest show that I've ever been to. It was them and Mephiscopheles and, and uh, Guar was the headliner. Oh, nice. <laughs> that sounds like a great show. It was a really great show. So it's, yeah, it was like a, a mix of, you know, skinheads and like Scott kids and then just, you know, metalheads that were there, that were like there to see Guar. And um, yeah, Thumper was great that night. I think they actually won over the room uh, pretty well. Just, you know, their stuff was, you know, pretty heavy, like I said. So um, I think if any ska band like was going to go down at a, at a Guar show, it was going to be Thumper, you know. You've kind of stated this already a few times, what your thesis of your book is. But I'm curious because my book I wrote, I had a point that I was making and that I want the reason I wanted to write it. That was to maybe expose people to what I felt like was the reality of ska and the ska scene beyond what their stereotypes were about it. Mm hmm. What was kind of driving you to write a book about ska and what was, what did you feel like was the purpose behind it? I was just trying to make a lot of money, really. <laughs> <laughs> There's just like so much money. In it. No, <laughs> so much money. In yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, if you actually broke it down by hour, it would be uh, the hourly rate for writing this book would be, oh my God, I don't even want to think about it that way. Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, no, the real reason is I think, I mean, I think it was kind of like you, Aaron, where, um, I, I love this music a lot and I, I read a lot of rock books. I've been, you know, doing music journalism for a long time and I felt like there wasn't really a book about this era. You know, there were some books about ska that were like pretty good and they covered all the waves and stuff, but there was like really nowhere that you could go to read about these bands that are like in my book really, you know, at, at the time. Yeah. And and I also just had this idea too about, you know, about like bringing the swing thing into it too and just really you know, sort of writing more about this era and, and this time in like American pop culture. And um, yeah, that to me seemed like it, you know, it was just this, this kind of like unexplored, you know, area. And also too, like we said, you know, swing was pretty, you know, crapped upon by, by most people. And so was ska. So it, it you know, kind of seemed like an opportunity to be like, well, hey, everybody, like, you know, maybe you have the wrong idea about this thing that was actually like a lot cooler than you think. And there was, you know, more variety than, than, than you think. And there were some really creative bands. How did you land on that title? Uh, I, I had that pretty early on. I, I was trying to find a, um, I knew that I wanted it to be a, a, a song title and I wanted it to, like to be something that would like cover both ska and swing. So I was, um, you know, there's like, you know, pinstripe suit, I think by, uh, by, by, uh, 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 let's go bowling. I think it's like, it has a song called pinstripe suit or something. And, so that was a possibility, but um, I'm a big Boston's fan, and that song "Hell of a Hat" off of uh, "Question the Answers," which which um, I think is their best album. Um, I I'd always loved that song, and you know there were sort of hats were you know somewhat common, I guess you could say, in both the ska and, and the swing scene. I know it's also one of the things that people probably you know tease both of the genres about, and like <laughs> you know a bunch of dudes wearing fedoras or whatever, but. You know, it's actually pork pies and ska, so it was, it was different, or you know, the golf hats or, or whatever. But like, I don't know, it just seemed like a really good. It's a song that I like a lot, and you know, the Boston's are the first, yeah, chapter in the book, and it just it can kind of apply to both of the scenes. So yeah, I don't know. 
your thesis, was that early on that you sort of decided that was the angle that the book was going to take? Or did you um, land on that after working through the idea a bit? Yeah, no, that was the, that was there pretty much right from the from the start. That was kind of the whole idea for doing it because I really couldn't think of. I mean, I think that if I had done a, a book that was sort of just about third wave ska, then I would have covered more of these bands like you know Thumper and Springfield Jack that I have in in my newsletter. I guess I was trying to find uh, a sort of angle that was a little bit more sort of widescreen and would maybe like appeal to a larger audience of just you know people my age who have some kind of fondness for like either of these genres. And, you know, I think it is like a different way to look at, at those years maybe. And I know that's, that's what it was for me, like just in, in a sort of thinking about it and kind of formulating it. Um, it was just kind of like a way to kind of reassess my, my teen years in a way, you know, like I think there was, you know, I, um, I think there are some people who are the sort of more two-tone purists who are like, you know, it's kind of a shame that American ska was not, you know, two-tone basically, right? And yeah, and I guess the you know, thing that I'm trying to say in this book is, well, it was a, a totally different, you know, time and place. You know what I mean? Like there was no way that the ska that came out of like Orange County in mid '90s was going to be as, you know, fiercely political as the stuff that came out of Coventry in you know '79. It was just, it's like apples and oranges, you know. But but that doesn't mean that it should be dismissed, right? Yeah, and I get some some of the times I would be reading and getting the impression that you were almost like, I don't know if I would use the word conflicted, but almost like you were trying to be like, well, you know, there's good and bad about this era. And uh, here's my thoughts to summarize both sides of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I can I can understand some of the arguments and, you know, maybe some of the reasons that uh you know people are are not as fond of of the american third wave stuff or the or the stuff that got popular um but i think ultimately what i tried to do with with you know with with uh, pretty much every band that i profile in the book i think i ultimately take a pretty positive view of of what they did you know i'm trying to think if there's anyone that i really i mean i think all these bands are are you know worthwhile in in their own way yeah i think like and and i what you did, I appreciate because I think a point that I was trying to make in my book that I don't know that I was even aware of until after is that not so much defending them, like being like, they're all great. They're all awesome. I think it was more just like, why can't we talk about ska bands in a way that's like, like the way we talk about other genres where other genres, it's like that you have a critical analysis of the bands, not just, yeah, exactly. Not just like, Oh, this was a, dumb time period and this music was silly or it's a guilty pleasure or it's just fun and I like it, but actually have a serious critical discussion of, of the bands and the, um, the time period and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Now that's something that I think definitely comes across in, I mean, uh, your book and yeah, that's what I was trying to do too, is like, you know, these are records that are not going to be, you know, pitchfork, like, you know, Sunday reviews in, in most cases, like maybe, you know, tragic kingdom or something, but I wanted to, you know, spend a couple of paragraphs talking about, uh, you know, Big Daddy Multitude by like Mustard Plug and like, you know, digging into some of the songs. And because I don't know if like anyone else really like was, was you know, doing that prior. I mean, um, you know, that was a record just to like pick one at random that, you know, meant a lot to me and my friends, my like freshman year of high school. And uh, I feel like there was like nothing written about it anywhere. So let's, you know, talk about it a little bit. For sure. I know. And yeah, I know it's it's weird because like I, I I did a I did a thing on Crab Rangoon and then I've since done like two 
podcast about it. And it's very surreal to me because I, I never really would imagine this much discussion would take place of, around this one album. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the band are very, very, it's very surreal to them too, that all this discussion has happened around this one album. So, but you know, it's, I feel like it's warranted and like there, you know, people have responded to this discussion of Crab Rangoon. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I love this album. And they wanted to, they want to dig into it and, and talk about the, the music and the lyrics and, and it's time. It's like, it's context and everything. It's just like, yeah, I feel like there's so many people hungry for Scott to be talked about in a serious capacity. I agree. And I think that was there for a long time, you know, and I think that's why, you know, your book is, you know, done as well as it has. Cause there there's, there's been a huge audience for this. And um, yeah, like I think you're, you know, looking at these records with a lot of uh, respect. I mean, just to even talk about them and, you know, kind of like go deep on them and, you know, break down the songs that just kind of like implies a, you know, level of, of uh, respect for the artist that, you know, for all these years, you know, different genres have always gotten that kind of respect. Uh, but, you know, Scott never, like, there's been no real, uh, you know, critical, t- I mean, you know, like with the uh, two-tone stuff, like that stuff's always been, you know, pretty respected. And I think the uh, Jamaican stuff too, but yeah, like any kind of American Scott just kind of gets like written off immediately by the, you know, tastemakers. Even the two-tone bands, I think you can get the tastemakers to concede on them, but they're not going to talk about specials the way they talk about Joy Division. They're, yeah, it's that's true. not the same thing. I mean, they'll be like, yeah, okay, that's cool and everything, but you know, then let me yeah. let me talk about the fall for two years. <laughs> yeah, what's well, how long it takes to uh, talk about the fall though? Because they had, you know, ninety-seven thousand albums. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so your book I feel like is great because you really dig you do you dig into this one specific time period in a very very critical way. You know, like you can tell that you're a longtime music journalist and you're sort of approaching it th- that way. And then Mark's book, I, I like a lot because he just went the oral history route and he took this whole era that's like completely forgotten and completely missing from the discussion. Like there's so many books about 80s alternative music, mm-hmm. no mentions of ska ever. Yeah, yeah, never, never. And it's ridiculous because all of those all of those brilliant bands that we all hail as like legends, they all played with ska bands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so sure. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Mark's book is fantastic, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, for all the reasons that uh, that you've said, and it's it's this, you know, massive you know time period that people don't know that much about. And it's like, if you want to know anything about it, you know, Mark's book will just tell you everything about it. You sure, know, it's yeah. like everything. So it's yeah, it's uh, I think it's cool that all, all three of our books. I mean, it could have been like a real disaster if they'd all come out in the same year and like pretty much covered the same the same stuff. Um, but it's cool that we all kind of came at it from, from a different angle and had different stuff to say about it. We could have been sworn enemies if we were all like <laughs> writing the same book, but now we get to be yeah. friends. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> I think the the best part is that, you know, Aaron's out here on the West coast and both you and Mark were back on the East coast. So you both have slightly different perspectives on it. Right. I mean, the, the national, the national bands end up being the same, but then the smaller underground stuff. Uh, or even just the the stuff that was happening in each scene, you know, because it's so it's such a pain to drive all the way across the country. <laughs> yeah. And even if you do, you know, if you if you don't catch that band when they come through, yeah, no, uh, that's, you that's never point. get to see them. Yeah, that's true. Let's uh, let's walk since your book is focuses on the sort of the cultural phenomenon of ska. Let's walk through um, ska as a mainstream 
sort of entity. So yeah, in your in your view, when does ska crack mainstream culture? Well, it's interesting. There had been a lot of articles in like the mid '90s. There was a there was a Billboard article that uh, that I think both of us mentioned in our books, and then a, a New York Times article that that was like just after Time Bomb hit. I think is when the Times article. So yeah, like, that, exactly. Yeah, late '95, maybe I guess that was. Um, it was definitely bubbling up at that point, and you know, Time Bomb being a big hit. But I think a lot of people that like heard Time Bomb probably wouldn't have even like like you know probably didn't know enough to call it ska even like if you were just like some kid listening to alt rock radio and you like you were used to you know dishwalla or something and then like time bomb came on i don't know if you were like oh yeah that's a ska song you know i think it i think it took a little bit i think you know no doubt kind of hitting and then people started talking about ska even though those songs weren't you know weren't like really ska songs and um you know sublime and i i don't know i mean i like the moment where it like like really cracked through I mean, yeah, maybe the boss tones with the, the impression that I get because that went to number one on the alternative charts, which is a pretty, you know, like, that's a pretty big deal, I think. And like that song was everywhere that summer. And that was the same summer as, uh, you know, the MTV Scatter Day, which I think is something, I mean, it'd be fun to talk about because I think, I think we have uh, somewhat different opinions maybe on the, on the MTV Scatter Day <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I think... might be the only, I might be the only defender in the whole entire world of MTV Scatter Day. Wow, you're about to be in defense of Scatterday. <laughs> <And, laughs> yeah, this is probably um, this is probably more uh, has to do with our age and when we started in the ska scene. But uh, yes, please please make your case. Defend Scatterday. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is even harder than trying to defend Swing. I think. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's um, uh, let's take a step back. Um, okay. All right. Just to explain what Scatterday is first, just in case there's somebody listening who doesn't know what that is. So this was, uh, I think it was June 28th, 1997. Uh, for some reason, MTV took two whole hours and played nothing but Scott videos with uh, a then unknown BJ named uh, a Carson uh, Daly wearing a black suit and a black hat and black sunglasses. And... Um, with like a whole bunch of kids behind him, you know, kind of skanking around. And it was like a weird assortment of, I think like ska kids. And then also just kids that were hanging out at like the MTV motel, California. So there was, yeah, you know, varying levels of skanking, but yeah, it was two hours of ska when you would have never expected it. Basically. This was when like MTV was still a really big deal in terms of, you know, like people watched it to like hear music and to see music videos and, I had no idea that it was going to be on. I, I, I just happened to be home that day. Uh, well, I was, I was home a lot in those days, but I was <laughs> just flipping through the channels. And this was like the height of my ska obsession. And I was like, holy shit, what, what, what is this? And I uh, popped a VHS tape in that I'm actually now looking at because I've got it. I've got it here in the room with me. I, I dug it out recently. But um, it's, yeah, Carson uh, playing ska videos and, you know, trying and, you know, failing in a lot of cases to kind of uh, fill people in on Scott's history in between videos. <laughs> so, okay. You have a positive view of Scott today? Let's hear it. I do. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, you know, very rare to see Scott videos in those days. And it was, you know, uh, like they, so yeah, they showed the Boss Tones and they showed No Doubt and they showed Real Big Fish and all, all the bands you would think. But they also showed, uh, you know, Fishbone, Party at Ground Zero. They showed the specials. They showed Madness. They showed uh, The Untouchables. Um, even though it wasn't a Scott song, they showed, you know, Tin Spam by the Stubborn All-Stars. 
And, you know, to see this stuff on TV, these were all records that like that I loved. And, you know, I'd never seen a Madness video before. Well, I mean, you know, I'd seen like Our House because that's played on VH1 and stuff. But I, I'd never seen One Step Beyond. I'd never seen, you know, Message to You, Rudy, uh, the video for that by the specials. So to actually you know, like get to see this stuff, it was it was incredible. And I think, too, like, you know, like I was never the kind of person that was like super protective of stuff that I liked. Like it's like just for the real heads, like, you know, like. I, I thought Sky was great and I was all for more people learning about it. And I mean, even though Carson was, was, was like no PhD in Sky and he certainly, you know, <laughs> sort of like, you know, fumbled through a lot of those interludes. I think ultimately if that turns some kids onto like stubborn all-stars or something, then man, that's, that's a great thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I will definitely agree that the song selection was good. I mean, all the songs you mentioned, I think there was like a two tone army by toasters, which had, yeah, like a, toasters were on there, yeah. which had a pretty low budget video. Cause it wasn't made for MTV. Yeah. yeah that was actually a shot by our, our, our friend, uh, Steve Schaefer, uh, shot that video. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, definitely props to their, um, se- selection. Although to be fair, I think their selection was pretty much every Scott video that existed <laughs> at the time, because there really wasn't a lot to choose from. So they, I think maybe were forced to put good stuff in there. That's true, but they could have just made it like, like a half hour show and yeah. just played, you know, Goldfinger and the Boston's and you know what I mean? I guess like, you know, I, I came down on it in my book only because I felt like it was just a, a good example of how the music was getting, um, sold to the public in a way that would eventually lead to it being viewed as a trend that would be an embarrassing trend for people that had been a part of it rather than really, really kind of giving people a good understanding of what ska was and was about. So I only talked about it negatively because of that. Although I did state that the music was good and I do stand by that. And yeah, that's a fair point. I think, I mean, you know, I'm not against, I guess I have, I'm really split at this idea of like how I feel about, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not precious about ska being like put in the mainstream Mm -hmm. at all. Uh, And and I've had definitely talked to people who are like five, six years younger than me who learned about ska from MTV and then became big fans. And then also learned a lot about ska from that. And that's awesome. I think it's more, um, you have, I guess you have to criticize the way mainstream, the mainstream tended to, um, you know, just not understand the things that they're, that they're hyping up and then what the effects of that, uh, the longevity of that thing is. That's the, that's the element, I think. No, no, that's a fair point. I mean, I guess I just think out of, out of all the examples of that, you know, I think, I think, you know, Scatterday wasn't like necessarily the worst offender in that. I mean, it was only on once on this one sure, day. Yeah. I don't know how many people actually saw it. Because <laughs> um, I've, 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 like, I've like told people about it over the years, and they're like, that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it did. <laughs> it definitely did. It really did, you know? But it was like, I mean, like, if anybody watched the whole thing, they, you know, they saw some pretty incredible videos. And they would have come away with, I think, like a better understanding of Sky as, as, as like not just being, you know, real big fish or something. Like, not that there's anything wrong with them, but... I think it actually painted a pretty, pretty broad picture of, of what, what Scott could be. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I'm, I think I need to go. Um, I think I need to go edit my book now. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, look, let's, you know, let's face it, the, you know, the Carson, um, in, you know, some of the interludes are, are pretty, <laughs> they're, they're pretty cringe. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not going to defend all of MTV Scott today. I, I just think, yeah, like, on the balance, I think it was it was more a positive, uh, maybe than it was a negative. Sure, but sure. I, I don't know. It's 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 fun to look at it now and just 
you know, laugh about it a little bit too. So <laughs> I agree with you though, actually there were way worse examples of that. Like I've seen, uh, not, not at the time I can't remember, but it, you know, in like on YouTube, I've seen things where it's like little news clips about ska and it's like, Oh, I love those. Yeah. <laughs> they're like five minutes long. And then they lump in the weirdest bands they are like three eleven, uh, sugar Ray, you know, yeah. they just take these bands and you're like, whoa, you guys are pretty far off from, you know, it's a bit of a stretch to be throwing in no doubt. And, you know, Sublime is kind of a interesting, you know, there's a case for and against Sublime, but Sugar Ray 311. I mean, yeah, no, there's absolutely no case to be made. Uh, yeah, there's a funny one that I saw recently that somebody posted on, on Twitter where it was like, I don't know if it was, if it was from like a, the E-Network or something. And it was like this like new trend of ska and they showed uh, squirrel nut zippers as part of it. And it was just like... <laughs> So, like, if you have a trumpet now, you're just ska, yeah. full stop. It's like, you know, Cake is, like, now a ska band, I guess. Your book deals a lot with the conditions and the, the people and the situations that sort of set up the ska explosion. Kind of talk a little bit about Boston's, like, long journey to becoming pop stars. Yeah, they had, they had like, the longest journey. I mean, they, you know, got together all the way back in, like, the early 80s, you know, like, 80, 83, 84. Four, I think it was. Um, yeah, I guess 84, I think. And, you know, they were together for like a few years and then they actually broke up, you know, and they were like broken up for a while. And when I talked to uh, uh, Joe uh, Gittleman for the book, he said that, you know, there was, you know, like there was kind of no thought that the band was, was like going to get back together at any point. Like they had just kind of done their thing. They played a bunch of local shows to a bunch of their friends and did like one show with uh, Fishbone. That was sort of like their big thing that, 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 they, that they did. But, you know, they all kind of went their separate ways. And then by um, 89, they just kind of met back up and were like, all right, we'll give it another go. And, um, you know, caught on and kind of like, you know, built this huge fan base. It was, you know, really the reason why they had majors coming to look at them is because they would play these, you know, shows up and down uh, New England where it would be kids all dressed in plaid, you know, lined up around the block. And, you know, they just had like kind of built this whole thing themselves. And, you know, Joe was saying that, you know, the guy who, who assigned them to uh, Mercury, like it wasn't because he thought ska was going to be the next big thing. He was just like, there's a bunch of kids who are coming to see you who are, who are like dressing just like you. He's like, I don't know what this is, but I'm, I'm going to sign it up. <laughs> and then, you know, signed like ugly kid, uh, Joe was like the next band that he signed after that. So like, you know, he, you know, wasn't thinking about, about ska as being a mainstream thing, but yeah, they kind of took the ultimate long road to the top. And even like even the, the Tang signing signing them and um when they reformed was like they weren't even really much of a buzz band or anything at that point. Tang just kind of took a risk on them or just liked them, right? Yeah, yeah, there was a thing in their contract that said they had to play 20 shows per year to, you know, promote whatever came out on Tang, which is which is a funny, I mean if you think about the Boston's being like this like band that's been you know most of that decade on the road you know they were like the ultimate road dogs and yeah you know i think that like you know the label is like well you got to play 20 shows it's like okay well <laughs> yeah we'll cover that but the boston's the boston's <laughs> were really interesting too because in that era they they really got super serious about it so much that they would be on the road all the time like you're saying but when they were home they would like re they would rehearse like all the time while they were not touring, even though they were touring so much, they were like, yeah, God, they, they were pretty crazy actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it shows, I mean, they're a, you know, super tight band, even, you know, to this day with all, with all, all their lineup changes, but yeah, that's something that I think even like at the time, 
like you know 25 years ago i didn't i didn't realize how like how tight that band was and like how good the rhythm section was and yeah they they you know they definitely brought the goods when i saw Boston's in like 95 actually i was a little surprised at how big they were i knew they were a major label band but they didn't have like singles and i was like a little, a little surprised at like the size rooms they were playing and mm-hmm. i was also like they were really struck me as like highly professional like most of the bands that I was a big fan of that I loved, you know, like Skank and Pickle was high on that list. Even like bands like Fishbone, it was like chaos first, <laughs> musicianship <laughs> second. And musicianship was there, don't get me wrong, but chaos yeah. was the priority. Boston's, it was like, you can tell the way that they like position themselves, the way that like certain members really didn't like focus on performing, that they were just there to like lay down the groundwork and then kind of certain members were there to be like showmans. It was like a, yeah, it was a different kind of experience. No, that's true. I, I think I saw them that, uh, that same year was, was the first time I saw them. And uh, yeah, that's why they've got, you know, that's why they have Ben Carr dancing around on stage. So the, <laughs> the others can just focus on, uh, but yeah, I, they, you know, they were, I think there's a reason why, I mean, you know, people, I don't know, like all the mainstream bands get get a sort of slagged off, but I, th- I think there's a reason why the Boston's made it for sure. So in between question the answers and let's face it, um, you were writing about how they were watching ska become sort of a thing, and they were having conversations with their label about, you know, the potential for writing songs that maybe were less antagonistic and were more pop oriented. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there was a conversation that that uh, Dickie Barrett was uh, telling me about that he had with um, Danny Goldberg, who had just been brought in as the head of Mercury. Um, I think he had been uh, Nirvana's manager, you know, back in the days. A pretty, you know, big, big time guy in the uh, music world. And he was like, you know, uh, I sort of get what you guys are doing. You you like have these songs that are these kind of like anti songs. He called them. You know, they they like they're not quite right for radio. And he's like, you know, I totally get that. And I like what you guys are doing and that's cool. You can like totally keep on doing that and like we're on board with it. But you know, there's like another way to do this where you can actually have some songs that like reach a lot of people and actually say something and you don't have to compromise, you know, whatever part of yourselves you guys are like scared of compromising. Um, and I think they kind of took that to heart going into, you know, the next record. And yeah, I think too, like, you know, Joe Gittleman said that when he heard, um, outcome the wolves he like went to like a mall and actually bought it and like played it in his car all the way through before he even left the parking lot and like he could just tell that the you know temperature was kind of changing on like alternative radio and where it whereas it had been so like grunge heavy just a few years earlier you know now that a song like time bomb could could get played there was you know maybe more opportunity for, for the boston's so you, you guys talked about the impression i get um I've, it's it's weird that song has kind of come up recently in pop culture and uh, people have discussed or hypothesized what the meaning is and I've seen all kinds of weird theories about that the, the the one that the one that I think is the most interesting is that it's about AIDS yeah, yeah. Um, so but you talked to Dickie so tell us a little bit about what the song's about and where it came from well so the uh, the idea for the song came he was at a close uh, friend of his his uh, um, his friend's brother had had died you know, fairly young and he was at a funeral. He was, you know, seeing all these people that were, you know, grieving and he was on the front porch of this house that he had like gone to when he was a kid. And he sort of realized that he had never been through anything that was that trying before, you know, like he'd never been through something like this. And it, 
he was kind of thinking about like how he would deal with it basically, or like, you know, what, like, you know, could he like deal with it? And so that was kind of the starting point for it. I think he wrote down like some words actually at the funeral in, in like a notepad or something. That's, that's kind of what the first verse is about. And then, you know, by the second verse, it's sort of a broader thing where he's kind of talking about, you know, kids growing up in this generation and they've never had like a, you know, World War Two or like a Vietnam. They've, you know, it's, so it's kind of like, it, you know, it's kind of a song about like, you know, what would happen um, um, if you ever had to face something like this? You know, could you rise to the challenge? Um, and in the chorus, he's saying, you know, I've, you know, I've never had to, you know, knock on wood that I've never had to, but, uh, you know, because I've heard it isn't good. And, you know, so it's, you know, the song, I think, actually, um, in some ways kind of speaks to my like underlying thesis of the book. And it's just kind of about this like 90s generation that has never been tested. You know what I mean? Like in some ways. And. Um, I, I'm not sure if people, when they heard the song, when it came out, if if like if that message kind of resonated. But I know I think it's sort of interesting that, that, that like that's kind of the underlying idea of the song. So after you got out of high school, like 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. uh, and ska had kind of gained a bad reputation at this point. Where were you on all of this? Where was your listening habits, and what were you gravitating towards? Uh, well, I was, I was, I went to school up in, up in Boston and I still went to a lot of ska shows. Uh, you know, the Boston ska scene was, you know, pretty great back in those days. And I, you know, I, I, I guess you like, you know, the slackers when they came through and all the, all the national bands. Um, I think I did start to branch out a little bit in my, in my listening habits. Um, I don't know if it was like so much because ska wasn't cool anymore, but like more that I feel like ska kind of like awakened in me this like passion for music that like ultimately kind of led me to a bunch of other things, you know, it was like from the specials, you know, I, I was like, you know, reading a bunch about them. And then I got, I got super into the clash when I was in high school and from the clash, I got really into like rockabilly and like, you know, dub reggae and um, all, all kinds of things that like the clash played. So that, you know, led me in like a million directions. And, um, you know, eventually I went through like a, you know, Depeche mode and, you know, Smith's phase because everyone does. <laughs> Or I don't know. I don't know if everyone does, but I certainly did. Mine was in high school when I went through that phase. And I actually, actually funny story. Um, and I've never, ever, ever dressed ska. Um, but I did kind of dress appropriate for a very brief time to that music where I was really into these like slightly baggy black pants <laughs> and these white button up shirts. It's unusual because I never, <laughs> I have zero interest in fashion in my, in my, my entire life. It's a good look though. You know, it's a, it's a sort of standard, it can, it can be a ska look. Sure. It's like a, a casual Friday ska <laughs> look. <laughs> what did you think of that period there for a while where bands were trying to hide their, their ska origins? Yeah, that I didn't much care for. Um, um, I can't think of any records that sort of came out of that period by any of those bands that I, that I really like all that much. Um, yeah. Trying to act like you were never ska is, is, you know, not a good look. I don't think it doesn't work because it's like insulting to the ska fans. And then the, the non-ska fans that you're trying to win over, they aren't interested exactly. because you sound too much like ska already. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's like in your book, like when you talk about, about a uh, slow gherkin, which was a band that I, 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 I love that band in high school. I, I got the, um, there's this compilation that this is Raj, this is ska. You probably know it. Mm-hmm. Aaron. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. you know, that also turned me on to, you know, filibuster. I love that band and uh, punch the clown. I think they're on there uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, slow gherkin. And I ended up, you know, buying the, um, the uh, double happiness, right. That, that, that was the album. That came out. Yeah. yeah. That's their, that's yeah. their first so album. I, yeah. You know, played the hell out of that for like 
you know, six months straight. And um, yeah, they even like admit it in your book, basically, that it, that it was a bad look to all of a sudden be like, mm, we're not Scott anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, that was like, that was the whole gist of it, basically, right. Is they were like, you know, like with, uh, with hindsight, they kind of feel like they, you know, maybe, but I, I understand the a temptation because, you know, it, it, it was like, this was not a time where you could really sort of go around advertising your Scott fandom necessarily. Yeah, I think James said that it was a chicken shit move. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think is greater, ska shame or swing shame? That's a really. I that's feel a like really swing great shame is way bigger. I'm not sure if there is any swing <laughs> shame though, because I mean, I mean, a swing like nobody even like really talks about it as much. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like if you were a swing fan, I think that's why there's so much shame. There's people yeah, I don't shame. even want to talk about. <laughs> maybe it. the shame is so deep. <laughs> That's that, that's a good question. Yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess probably the swing shame for for people. But um, and hopefully my book will you know you can you can help alleviate some of their swing shame. Hold your head up you high and admit that, that that you were into this music. It's okay. Dig dig way deep into the back of your closet <laughs> and find that zoo suit and that long <laughs> chain that you used to wear. Use those sw- those swing dance lessons that you took. <laughs> it's like riding a bike. You never forget how to. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> so when did you become a music journalist? Uh, it was in my last uh, semester of college. I, I was, I, I was, I was in an economics major actually. Um, and for some reason I was, I was out one day with a friend and my friend like knew somebody that was uh, the arts editor at, at the school paper. And my friend was like, Oh, like, you know, my roommate, you know, loves music. Like, you know, you should like have him write something for you. And she's like, yeah, if you want to write something. So I, I went to the meeting and you know started doing like record reviews or something, and I was like, "Whoa, you can get people to send you free records! <laughs> this is incredible!" And you can like interview people on the phone. And so yeah, once I graduated, I, I just I started uh, freelancing for different places and had done it in you know one capacity or or another for the last almost twenty years. My becoming a music journalist in two thousand nine was a huge step towards me writing this book, just because being a music journalist and a ska fan seemed to be almost like these like opposite things mm-hmm. in our culture. And I, that was like part of what, like, you know, I thought about a lot. How did having been a music journalist for pretty much your entire adult life impact your desire to write about ska? Well, I, I sort of tried to sneak it in a lot over the years. Um, I, I kind of started out doing, um, a lot of concert uh, reviews for the for the paper in Hartford, uh, the Hartford Current, which is like the, the big paper in uh, Connecticut. And I would I would review, you know, Mustard Plug or the Slackers or, or like whoever was you know coming to town. And yeah, like over the years, I think I've I've always tried to sneak in some ska content here or there whenever you can get you know some editors to <laughs> kind of take a chance on stuff. I mean, it, you know, it you know, for a long time there it was a hard sell, as as I'm sure you know, Aaron. It was you know it's not easy to get people. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, you know, uh, there are exa- like that, you know, Playboy piece that you did like that, like that's a great example of, you know, somebody taking a chance on it and a, a great story blossoming out, you know, out of it. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. Do you know who took a big chance on that article? <laughs> who? His name was J- James Rickman from Slow Gurgan, oh, that's right. the editor yeah. of yeah, You told me that. Yeah, that's right. You told me that, I think, in, in, your, in your DMs one day on, on Twitter, you told me that. That's right. <laughs> I mean, but that's kind of the cool thing, though, is that the people who kind of are in power now in those positions of being editors were once 14 year old Scott kids. That's the thing. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, I think almost any, almost any white male age, I don't know, <laughs> like 35 to 45 
has some probably some like secrets got past, right? <laughs> Definitely. To some extent. I want to ask you about one specific Scott article you wrote. And I read this when it came out. Um, you got uh, an article in Pitchfork about Scott. I did, yeah. Wow. And what? Uh, now, so I'd, I'd like to take a moment. Um, people made a big deal about Jeff Rosenstock getting Pitchfork to say that Scott's cool this year. Mm -hmm. But you got Pitchfork to... Um, but you write an article about Scott in 2015. That's true, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, please please tell us about this. I would say this was sort of like the start of me thinking kind of more critically about Scott and about like 90 Scott and its kind of place in the whole story. I, I, I'm not sure that I necessarily kind of stand by everything in, in, in that piece, but yeah, the piece was kind of written about because I noticed there were some things happening with some of the like two-tone bands. There was like a new... Yeah. Um, it was a new like English beat record was in the works. There was a new Spectre album that was, I think it had like just come out. So it, it was sort of you know the article is sort of about you know people hate ska, but you know let's like forget about the American stuff for a second. You know two tone was this sort of great, you know it was this like anti racist music and it had this you know great uh, social consciousness to it. Yeah, I guess I was just trying to kind of draw more attention to uh, two tone and just how. Cause like that's music that I think has like, as I've gotten into like other things and even during my, you know, Depeche Mode Smith's period, like I, I was always listening to like more specials, you know, or uh, like madness, like, like that stuff was always with me. And I just wanted to, I guess, kind of give props to, to that. I mean, it wasn't really like an attempt to, you know, diss uh, 90s Scott. All. It, it was more just sort of like, let's, you know, celebrate two tone for what it was. So tell me a little bit about, did you intend that article? Was Pitchfork your t first pick on who to submit that to? Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, um, I think at that point I had written a couple other things for Pitchfork. I, I had like finally broken in there. Uh, it was actually uh, Jessica Hopper was was the editor of of that section at, at the time. It's called uh, it's uh, called the Pitch, which it, it still exists. Like the, yeah, know, they do these sort of. Uh, it's more like yeah, pieces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I'd written something about about Latin uh, freestyle music, um, which I which I always loved. Um, you know, stuff like you know Lisa Lisa and uh, that kind of stuff in the eighties. Um, so yeah, I think I was just you know trying to think of something else that I you know knew a lot about and I sort of cared a lot about. And yeah, you know, Scott came to mind, and I was like, yeah, what the hell? I'll just I'll just kind of give it a shot. And uh, yeah, I mean. I'd have to go back and look at it because I, I actually can't really like recall exactly what I said, but I know that it like, you know, the whole gist of it basically was that, you know, the American bands were not as uh, political as, as the two-tone bands. I think it was the beginning of sort of me thinking about 90s ska kind of more critically. And it kind of ultimately led me to this idea of, well, yeah, like 90s ska wasn't a two-tone, but that's because like America in the late 90s was not you know, Coventry, 1979, or, or London, 1979. It was, it was a totally different, you know, place and totally different set of circumstances. And to try to expect the ska from the uh, 90s to be the same as a two-tone, I think, is, is you know, sort of foolhardy. Was the, the editor interested right off the bat, or did she take some convincing? Um, I'm curious about this, because they just, they, they, have, they have close to zero ska content in that, on that site. I think I pitched it and yeah, I think she, I think she took it. I mean, not like right. I mean, it wasn't like she wrote back, you know, 20 seconds later and was like, I must have this, but <laughs> <laughs> I must have this. Scott I must have it tomorrow. But no, I think it was like, 
yeah, I, I mean, I think I didn't have to, you know, press too hard. Maybe be, you know, because I'd written the uh, the Latin freestyle one before that. And I don't know, maybe kind of, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I was kind of surprised too because <laughs> there's you know very little Scott content on, on Pitchfork even even now. I mean, I, I was I was so surprised that over the last year that there wasn't a uh, you know Catbite review or like a We Are the Union review. I, I'm I'm you know shocked that. Uh, those those records didn't get covered me too i'm disappointed that all these um outlets that were jumping on the sky's back articles weren't willing to actually review these new records right um and i was kind of you know the 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 people that would interview me and push push these articles i would try to like suggest that to them like hey you should should really consider reviewing these records because there's a lot of good records coming out this year, not just Jeff's mm-hmm. album, uh, but the other, there's other ones, lesser known bands. And I think that they're totally worthwhile to be reviewed and, and you know, and just inserted within the other styles that are already yeah, okay. No. And yeah, but no, so far, no. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, and I think too, like there was a point that I, I think uh, Mike Park said in, in one of those like trend pieces where he, he was saying that he thought that these that this like new crop of bands was actually doing a better job than the '90s bands of like talking about politics and talking about things that were going on. And I think that's right. And I think you know something like you know we are the union like that like that's an important record for you know conversations that uh, like that we're having right now. And I think like it's a shame that uh, people aren't aren't sort of drawing attention to it because you know that's a great band and it's a great record. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. I get all the I feel like all the bands that are getting sort of a little bit more attention are all good bands too. That's, that's something that's like really cool to me. And I was, I, I still have hope that it'll get a little bit more. It'll snowball a little bit more because, because they're all good bands and I see them all have having a lot of potential to make better records and to really sort of help to rehab the Ska's, um, reputation, I think. Yeah. It's, I mean, it'll be sort of interesting to see how, how it, how it sort of plays out because it's like you know i think a lot of people have said this um and i agree like i don't think you're gonna see a sort of traditional like in a fourth wave of ska where there's like another mtv scotter day or anything like that uh oh no way thank god that's the case but you know like you're not i mean you know i don't know if if like you'll see a ska single in the top 40 again but just because of the way the world is now things are so fragmented and you know but um so yeah, it'll be kind of, you know, I think these like next couple of years are are going to be really interesting just to see how how the how the genre kind of shapes up and how how the public at large kind of responds to it. And you know, I think it'll be kind of hard to tell even if it's if it's like reaching beyond like Scott Twitter, you know, just because like there aren't the same kind of metrics to, to kind of. I mean, I guess you know, people coming out to shows maybe that's the that's the true test is like when you know Catbite tours like are, like are they going to draw all across the country? I I certainly hope so because you know they're amazing. Like I agree with you. There's not going to be a top forty single Scott. I mean, it's possible, but it's very unlikely. But you know, places like Pitchfork and some of these other outlets. I mean, they review stuff that is like obscure, um, and they and they're into like garage rock and some of the stuff. Like I don't see why there isn't room for like a handful of Scott records to be part of those, uh, you know, off offbeat genres that they cover. Yeah. Because yeah. there are plenty of them that have absolutely no potential to be top forty bands. That's ever. true. Yeah, they do like a lot of you know like spe- like uh, experimental uh, techno and stuff and like these things that you're yeah you're like yeah who is going to actually be like reading you know seven hundred word reviews on this like it's it's got to be getting 
fairly minimal text, but yeah, yeah, it's, I think it just goes back to, uh, you know, what, what, we, what we've been saying, the kind of lack of respect for it. And I just want to know when there's going to be the Sunday review for uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Kenneth, is, is, so the sound in the background that we're hearing is, is a storm? Oh yeah, sorry. Can you hear the uh, the rain on my windows? Is that yeah? Oh, yeah, I'm geez. I'm actually really digging it. <laughs> I was wondering if we can just look at the timer. Can 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 you? How close can you get to the window? Uh, I I can get I can get very close. Go stand by the window and let's just watch the counter for thirty seconds, starting now. I think that was good. That was our moment of zen. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska, now, more than ever. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.